welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, welcome to the very first episode of the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. This is a podcast that will explore any number of facets of being a Canadian business owner and entrepreneur. If you are one, you know that essentially your life is split into two, your personal and your business life, and they tend to merge with each other quite often. But the rules and regulations surrounding one are very different from the rules and regulations surrounding another. So we're going to explore all kinds of issues from more structural ones like today, where we're going to talk about corporate structure to softer ones like how to find purpose once you're ready to start retiring. So for my first episode, I welcome Ted Maduri, partner at DLA Piper. DLA Piper is a large multinational law firm catering to basically every form of law known to man. Ted's specialization specifically as a corporate lawyer. And I brought him on the show to talk about how to structure your corporation and how to structure holding companies, trusts, and whatever else may be involved in your corporate structure for the best optimal outcome. And with that, here's my interview with Ted. Hello, Ted. Hey, Jason. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, my pleasure. Long-time listener, first-time guest, I guess. Long-time listener to the other podcast, right? To the other, <laughs> to the other big, podcast. Big fan of the other podcast. Good, yeah. good. Excellent. For those of you who don't know yet, the other podcast is FinTech Impact, and that is already more than 100 episodes in, so please check that one out. So Ted Maduri of DLA Piper, uh, I brought you in to talk about fundamentals of business structure, incorporation, corporate structure planning. So let's, let's talk about that. So someone wants to start a business. What are the options for how they structure that business from a legal standpoint? Yeah, I think the most basic option is to set up a sole proprietorship where it's just an individual. Maybe you register a business name, you carry on business through that sole proprietorship. There's no difference between you as an individual and the business. Another option is if there's more than one person involved in the business, you would set up a partnership. That can be just a regular limited partnership. There are certain kinds of partnerships that uh, service providers have, such as a limited liability partnership and then of course there's the corporation that I would say most businesses operate as so most people when I talk to them about want to start a business they always seem to leap to corporation first right yeah so let's talk about the first two so as you said there's no difference between the individual and the business but what you've done as a sole proprietor you've let you've registered a business yeah. right and then what does that permit you to do well it permits you to have a brand mm-hmm. uh, usually you'd register under a statute to um, have a name that mm-hmm. you carry your business under and um, you can enter into contracts. You can, if the contracts don't go well, you can sue under those contracts so long as you're registered. And you're right, I think most people do jump to a corporation and sometimes perhaps more quickly than they need to. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing is it allows you to deduct those business expenses, right? So now you're, and and for people who don't realize this, but the way it works is essentially, you know, you are the business. Whatever money you make in that business or elsewhere is your top line income and your deductions for the business get subtracted from your income on your personal state, a personal income tax statement. So, I mean, tell me about the costs of, of this, setting up a structure like this. Just a sole proprietorship. A sole proprietorship. Yeah, it's just a hundred or two hundred dollars with yeah. uh, the government or or with your lawyers to register your business name. Of course, there'll be accounting fees um, mm-hmm. at the end of the year, but. I think one thing to keep in mind is that you're not stuck with that structure for the rest of your existence. Mm -hmm. You can carry on a business as a sole proprietorship, and when the time's right, you can convert, 
whether to a partnership if you bring on someone to run the business with you or convert to a corporation down the line. Okay, so before we jump to the corporation part, we're just going to spend most of the time. So, I mean, clear advantage there is, in my mind, simplicity, right? And, yeah. and cost. Whereas when we go to a corporation, there's additional costs involved. So let's talk about that first. We'll come back to partnerships. So what are, sure. what are the costs of running a corporation and the complexity added to one's life? Yeah, it's it's not onerous. It's, um, you know, most services would charge you a few hundred dollars in a government fee to incorporate. There's some legal fees involved with that. There would be a separate accounting fee to do a separate tax return yeah. or a separate set of financial statements. So you're talking, uh, you know, all in a couple or a few thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, one of the big frustrations I see, especially starting out, people starting off with a corporation, is realistically, any decent accountant I know is not going to do a corporate tax return for less than $3,000. In addition to that, you have the bookkeeping burden, right? Whereas before, you could just keep your receipts and then deduct them all at the end of the year. Here, you've got to actually have tangible books, right? So yeah, the, the ongoing maintenance of that and filing those tax returns, you're looking at at least three grand for even a simple case. So, you know, it's a pretty big difference, a hundred, you know, <laughs> less than 200 bucks to get going in one case and in the other case, basically thousands, thousands right? Yeah. Now, one of the things, uh, so let's go back to partnerships before we move on to corporations and a couple other questions I have. So partnership, how does that differ from a sole proprietorship? Well, it, it is involving a separate person who's uh -huh. joined your, your company. So it could be the case that you have a business partner and essentially you'd enter into a partnership agreement, you'd register that partnership with the government, and the two of you would enter into a, an arrangement whereby you carry on your business. So essentially it's, it's almost like a multiple of the sole proprietorship, Correct. right? So you're still deducting taxes, they're still paid personally, income is still taxed on a personal level, you're just repeating it across multiple people, Correct. right? Now, let's talk about, so the advantages, I mean, are clearly simplicity, I think, and cost. What are the disadvantages of having a sole proprietorship or partnership? Yeah, I, I think you can flip it and say, what are the advantages to incorporating? <laughs> Fair enough, exactly. And, and so I think, yeah. you know, a corporation um, exists perpetually. Mm -hmm. It continues beyond your existence. There's uh, limited liability attached to a corporation that you don't see with a partnership or so. Sole someone sues the business. You're suing the business. They're not suing you. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Now, I, will, I also caution people with this is that typically when we're talking about lending, you want to get a loan for the business. Any business starting off, the bank is going to want a personal guarantee anyway. So you're not protected there. But and then on the person and also depending on what you're doing on the sole proprietorship side, frankly, you should have insurance in place. Right. So but it is nice to have that extra layer of protection, knowing that as long as you conduct business ethically, that corporation is getting sued, not your personal assets. You're, you're right. There are there are lines that are blurred. Um, for example, a guarantee with the bank yeah. or an indemnity under a lease, your landlord may require you to sign personally. So in that case, the lines are blurred and you're not fully protected by the corporate structure. But all else being equal, I think it is an additional layer of protection. Yeah. So it is nice, especially if you get bigger, right, then it becomes less and less likely you'll have to provide those guarantees, right? So at that point, Correct. you would have that protection. Whereas you don't have that with the sole proprietorship and the partnership, right? You don't have a separate entity that basically gets to conduct itself. You mentioned specifically it lives on forever. So I die, right? I own a corporation. Even if I was the only one working in that corporation, technically it still lives, right? Correct. Yeah. And those shares can be transferred by the will. So before we move on with, I want to dive more into corporations, but before sure. we do that, let's talk about one issue that we all have to face in Canada. Uh, and we'll get into that in the, in the corporations later, but HST. 
right? So HST or GST, regardless of, depends on what province you're in. At what point does a business have to worry about uh, taking care of HST or GST? Ooh, I guess I should caveat all that I'm saying with the, the caveat that I'm not a tax lawyer. I'm just a lowly corporate lawyer. My understanding is that 30,000 yeah, right. is when you need to, to uh, start charging and collecting HST. So it basically, if I start off and I am selling you know handmade widgets from whatever I'm doing in my basement, whatever it is, and I basically only make $10,000 in a year, I really don't have to worry about an HST number, right. registering, filing those registrations, anything like that. So then let's talk about uh, you know, you're not a tax lawyer, but let's talk about what the other advantage to corporations are is that's potentially access to the small business tax rate. So how freely do you want to, can you speak about that being a lowly tax, uh, lowly corporate lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know that there is huge benefits to having a corporation from a tax perspective, in addition yeah. to the perpetual existence and the limited liability. So being a corporation does have certain benefits. Yeah. So I'll speak to that because I do this all the time. So depending on the province, we're looking at tax rates that are let's call them anywhere around 10 to 15% on, on small business income, which again, depending on the province, is roughly about half a million dollars. So corporation makes half a million bucks. You're looking at a tax bill that's probably in the neighborhood of 50 to 75,000 for the corp. However, when you take money out of the corporation, you're then gonna pay tax on it either as income or dividends, and it ends up being, when you add up the tax bill paid by the corp and the tax bill paid by yourself, it's the same thing. The advantage though is that the business now has more money to reinvest and grow and do all those good, wonderful things. But in terms of any beyond that, it, you then enter the general tax rate, which is 26%. And that's a big difference in contrast to the top personal rate, which depending on the province, Half the provinces have tax rates over 50% when you get to 200,000, 220,000, and then some of them are the other half are very close. So, we will bring someone on to talk about corporate taxation at a later date. So, we'll get more into that. But let's talk now about having the corporation. So, typically, when people set up a corporation, they typically set it up usually sole shareholders or they have a partner and they have they have share, um, they have everybody's got classes of shares. Talk to me about the need for planning at that time, specifically around partnership agreements. Like, what needs to be done there to make sure? that things are gonna go smoothly in that category. Yeah, so I think a couple of things. You do need to think about how you hold the shares in your company. So it, it, it's often the case that you do just hold the shares personally or you, you register the shares in the name of your spouse. Uh, but there is some planning opportunities there sure. into how you hold the shares and, and maybe I'll come back to that in a yeah. minute. Anytime you do have more than one shareholder, you should have a shareholder agreement. So that does many things. It talks about how the company will be run during its life. I sort of sometimes describe it as a prenuptial agreement for mm -hmm. business owners. And so it talks, it's, it's- And there's no romance in business, so it's okay to do it. Yeah, <laughs> there's not. There's less resistance to these than prenups. Yeah, <laughs> and but it's a document that I think you worry about and then put away for a rainy day. And it talks about um, what happens upon certain things happening in the future, like death, disability, marital breakdown, what happens if there's a sale of the company. I think those are some of the key issues that you want to tackle in mm -hmm. a shareholder agreement, especially what's called a drag along, right? So if you have other shareholders, minority shareholders, and you as the majority shareholder want to sell the company, having a shareholder agreement that talks about what happens in that scenario mm -hmm. is, is, is very important so that if there's a buyer who wants to buy your company, you can tender 100% of the shares of the company. So those are the sorts of things that are discussed in a shareholder agreement that you can put in place right at the outset. Okay, so again, later date, we're gonna to touch upon that in greater detail, but Ted was brought in specifically to talk about structuring. So let's talk about considerations for how you basically own the shares of the corporation. Mm -hmm. What are the key things people should be considering? How are the different method, what are the different methodologies for how they would do that? And what are the factors at play? 
Yeah, and, and I think it's some of the same things we talked about in, in the kind of business form that you set up at the beginning. Those considerations are relevant here because what you set up originally isn't necessarily how you need to keep it forever. Mm -hmm. So you can set up your company with you as the sole shareholder, and then once you see that the company is going to be successful, you can add some complexity. So you can add some complexity by introducing a holding company. You can add some complexity by introducing a family trust or some combination of those mm -hmm. things. And the idea behind adding that complexity is that there's some tax benefits, there's some creditor proofing advantages to setting up those kind of complex structures. So I think that's something that you should consider at the appropriate time when you see that the business that you set up is doing well. So what are the key things that indicate it's the appropriate time? Uh, mostly that you can afford it. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Yeah. For each company, for each family trust, uh, you're adding costs up front yeah. as well as annual costs, both for accountants and lawyers. And so you, you want to make sure that you can pay for that. And so coming out of the gate with a fancy corporate structure isn't always advisable mm -hmm. because maybe the business isn't going to work and maybe you're just uh, spending money needlessly. So I do think that's something at the appropriate time when you see that this thing has legs where you can consult an investment advisor like yourself mm -hmm. who, who knows these issues or an accountant or a lawyer and you can talk about if it's the appropriate time. Yeah. Now, I mean, that being said, the one thing about doing it early is that it's clean. However, like you said, the problem is you have to weigh that out with the fact that for the cost is there. And then frankly, by the time the business is successful, maybe your life has changed and what you would have set up initially, if you had your wish, wouldn't be what you want down the road. Correct. And sometimes if you set it up originally with a fancy structure, it'll cost you X. If you set it up down the road, uh, and you want to make some tweaks, it might cost you 2x, yeah. but at least you know then that you can afford the 2x. There's yeah. going to be a business that can pay for it. But to do it later, it does cost you more than doing it a certain way up front. Yeah, and, and frankly, the reality is is that if you're doing it's going to cost you 2x, it's, it's going to be warranted that there's a benefit to do that. So let's talk about do's and don'ts. Like, So what are the kind of mistakes you see people do when they're setting up these corporations or fancy structures? Like, What are the things you would advise people starting out not to do? And then after that, what would you advise people who've gotten to that stage where what are the other indications beyond they're successful? Like, What are the needs underlying, the underlying needs for restructuring? Yeah, maybe if I could just talk about the shareholder agreement, do's and don'ts for a second. Yeah, you know what? yeah we should touch on those. Let's do that first. Because I do think yeah. some people, when they realize through their other lives or through investments that they've made, when they realize how lengthy a document it is, the shareholder agreement, they they just decide that because it's expensive and lengthy to, to negotiate and put in place, they'd rather have nothing mm. and not, not pay for that. It's always better to have something than nothing. And yeah. some some folks have put together abridged versions of a shareholder agreement to get something in place. You know, you're talking a, sort of like a term sheet uh, where five, six pages, you talk about the key issues between your partners and yourself. I think that's better than, than waiting until the perfect time when you can absolutely afford a 40 page document. So I do think having something's better than nothing when it yeah. comes to the shareholder agreement. I'll tell you, I just, I've seen it go sideways so many times, I'm sure you have, that my preference is to having it done right. Because again, we're talking about a couple of things, this agreement, like debt, disability, this agreement, right? Like those are the three big Ds. You're dead, you wanna make sure that your family gets what's rightfully theirs, right? You're disabled, you're in a position of vulnerability, right? Maybe you can't even negotiate on your own behalf, right? And then this agreement, I mean, the number of times I've seen people want to say, oh, we don't have a partnership agreement, and then they're in massive conflict already. That's not the time to negotiate when it's not gonna go so Correct. well. Correct. Yeah. 
And that's why I do think something is better than nothing. You're right, as between your your various legal items that you want to, to eventually tackle, I, I do think the shareholder agreements at the t should be at the top of your list. Going back to the original question, so let's talk about specifically first the mistakes people make when setting up their corporate structure. What are the most common ones or things that you see done? Well, I think, yeah, there's a few that come to mind. I think, like you said, there's, there's the opportunity to put a, a structure in place that they think is going to be the be-all and end-all, and then they just outgrow it. And so it doesn't fit their scenario anymore. So to think that you've done it right and, and it doesn't need to be adjusted in the future, I think is is not right. So I think combining assets in one corp is a thing we see all the time. For example, combining your real estate investments with your with your operating company, yeah. that's a big no-no. So let's talk about why that is. Why is that a big no-no? Yeah, it's a big no-no in, in the event that you wanna sell the business. Mm -hmm. um, you wanna make sure your business is set up for, for future sale. That's what this, yeah. is, this is all about, right? So if you're combining your real estate with your business and you wanna keep your real estate when you sell your business, then that's a problem. You'll have to separate yeah. them down the road. Sometimes when you have an investment property with your business, it disqualifies your business from, from, the, from the small business, right? Yeah. Correct. So I think it's always better when you have different asset classes to put little boxes around them to have separate legal entities around those things. Yeah. And obviously consult your, your accountant or lawyer because I do think combining or commingling assets is potentially problematic. So, yeah, and I did talk about there the, the small business tax rate, but the other rate we were getting at was disqualifying is that there is a exemption for lifetime a lifetime capital gains exemption where anyone selling shares of, of a Canadian controlled private corporation qualifies for the first 860-ish mm -hmm. thousand. Next year, it's almost 900,000. Almost 900,000. Yeah, so it's it, the number changes every year with inflation. That's why I'm iffy on it. I look it up every time just to be safe. It's going up to a million before it's capped, in theory. We'll see what happens. Governments, you know. But bottom line is, is that in order to do that, you have to be selling an operating company that's not loaded up with investment assets and real estate is an investment asset. So that can put you offside and rob you of the ability to save the tax on that much money of the sale. So yeah, we want to make sure that if you're going to have, the, you get it. We want to make sure that if you have a corporate structure that and you sell those shares, that you qualify for that very lucrative exemption. Yeah, the other mistake I think we see a lot is a Canadian company running a U.S. business under mm. the same umbrella as the Canadian company. Again, for the same reason, if you commingle your real estate with your business, if you commingle your Canadian business with your U.S. business, you could also disqualify your company from, from being able to take advantage mm -hmm. of the lifetime capital gains exemption. So making sure that you consider whether it's appropriate to have an entire U.S base structure separate from your Canadian. And that's not that complicated. You just mm -hmm. have a sister, a mirror image, where you have a US corp owned by the same shareholders. Just, it's not a subsidiary of your Canadian business. It's a separate mirror image. Yeah. And so setting that up properly, once you see that there's some real potential for your US business to be successful, Keeping that separate is is an important consideration as well. At the same time, I mean, you're separating your liabilities, right? You're dealing with two very different legal codes. I mean, still based in common law, but nevertheless, I mean, you get sued in the U.S. There's for operations down there, whatever it might be. Funny side note: it was a funny story. Uh, Bernie Ecclestein, the guy who runs F1, was once asked about what's it like to do business in the states when he first started doing business in the states. He said, "Well, imagine you're walking along and someone asks you what time it is, and you say noon, and it's 12:01. They turn around and sue you, right? So it may not be that bad, but just you know, it's a little." to just society. So the point is, is that if you can separate out your liabilities from come from country to country, that's also not a bad thing. Yeah, I think the other thing that leads into another thing I've seen a lot, which is having various divisions of a business all operating under the same umbrella mm -hmm. or all under the same 
legal entity, and sometimes it's more appropriate to have separate legal structures for separate legal entities for each of those divisions. Liability so, based as well. A hundred percent liability. Yeah. yeah. So even if think about a restaurant or yeah. some other business where you have multiple locations, you should think about having separate legal entities for each of those locations. Yeah. Or if you have multiple divisions of the same kind of business, it might be appropriate to set each of those divisions up as a separate legal entity, mostly for putting all of that liability related to that business under sort of yeah. one umbrella. You typically see that a lot too with uh, property development. You know, every Correct. separate development will be a separate corporation altogether and the company will come in and do all the work on it. But that way, God forbid, you know, something goes terribly wrong on one job site, it doesn't jeopardize every other job site Correct. that they have. Yeah. Okay. So that's the complications or the, the mistakes made when they're getting overly stretched out. Down the road, they basically have gotten bigger. They've expanded out. What are the common mistakes you see later on when they basically, you know, they've no longer outgrow. They've taken the time. But in terms of setup, like where, what, should, what are the factors need to consider and the things you've seen them not consider properly when setting up a proper the kind of second generation structure? Yeah, I, I think when people have turned their minds to uh, setting up a structure that doesn't just see them hold the shares personally and individually, They've maybe set up a hold co or they set up multiple classes of shares for their mm -hmm. different family members. I think what, what sometimes they forget about is once you put shares into someone's hands, they own those shares. And <laughs> yes, it's a common issue. And so that's why I think having something as powerful as a family trust is useful because the business operator can be the sole trustee mm -hmm. and they can put uh, the family members that they want to distribute shares to or dividends to or property to, they could become beneficiaries of that trust, but mm -hmm. they retain sole discretion over those decisions. As for clarification, a family trust is a trust. It's a leather legal entity that can own things on behalf of other people run by a trustee who has control over that and acts on their behalf. So as you said, they can put in the family trust and they can be a trustee, right? And then they can have family members or beneficiaries. Those beneficiaries get whatever they get, but they don't get to dictate terms, right? Correct, correct. And they don't have to get anything. It's the trustee's decision whether to distribute anything to them. Assuming it's drafted properly. <laughs> Assuming it's drafted properly yeah. and you don't name names and you describe categories. Yeah. Uh, we see it all the time with uh, sort of individuals naming their spouse. Instead, we've taken the, the stance that perhaps you should describe the category the of your spouse, spouse as opposed to, you know, Janie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no knock on Janie, that's not my wife. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, don't name them by name, name them as current spouse. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, we used to also see a lot of trust agreements have multiple trustees, both the spouse and the business operator, um, maybe a third. Yeah. And I think that's gone the way of the dodo bird. I think mostly yeah. we see trusts now drafted with a sole trustee, just yeah. in case there is a, a breakdown in the marriage. Or um, I do see them still with, well, yeah, usually not with spouses, but I do see three trustee structures, but typically the business operator's vote must be included in whatever decisions made, so no one can team up against them. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's that's useful. Now, one of the, I mean, one of the common mistakes I see all the time, I typically see, we'll get to, a corporation will get to a, a size where there's starting to pile up cash in the corporation, right? They, they're they're the, the entrepreneur is taking out enough to sustain their lifestyle. You know, they don't want to pay 53% on the tax that they're taking out, 53 being Ontario's rate. So they leave money behind the corp for a rainy day or to start investing and growing it. And the accountant turns around and says, hey, you know, we should protect that money. Let's put a holding company in place. So they create another corp company and move the operations of that company and the assets stay behind the holding company. And every year they take the cash and move, to, move it down. What's the problem with that structure? Yeah. And, and you're sort of highlighting um, you're just moving up the problem. So you can't have a, a situation where the operating company, for all sorts of reasons, collects investments or assets that would put it offside. 
yeah. for sort of qualification reasons, but also for credit proofing reasons, right? Yeah. You don't want to make it uh, accessible to creditors to attack. So what you sometimes see is the money moved up to a hold co and then investments made, real estate purchased. Yeah. That's just moved up the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. So yeah. now you, in the future, if you were to want to sell the operating company, you would want to sell the shares of the holding company. But now you have all sorts of assets in that company. So you have to purify it or cleanse yeah. it. So you don't have, again, you don't qualify for the exemption because there's too much money in there. And all too Correct. often I see this as the, you know, the accounts think first about the credit protection, but don't think about the long-term setting up of the sale of the business. Correct. So yeah, so that's, you know, that's my little setup for the most common mistake I see. So right. keep that in mind. So basically, in terms of optimal structure, this is something yeah. that's kind of unique to everybody, right? I don't really it see is, one yeah. solution work for any, everyone. Yeah, I think it is unique and everyone has its own, his or her own situation. But I think the, the most typical structure you would see is to have an operating company with a family trust as mm -hmm. the shareholder. And then as one of the beneficiaries of the family trust, you would have a holding company. So, so that allows me to push money from the operating company through the trust to the holding company. Correct. And then eventually sell the shares because they're held by the trust. The trust. Yeah. So that, that gets around the need to sort of keep that holding company pure. There's reasons that maybe depending on the number of shareholders and the percentage owned, maybe you need to do uh, some sort of hybrid structure where you have a clean holding company with mm -hmm. a family trust and then a beneficiary of the family trust. But as a base case, I think the most typical scenario that we, we advise people on is having the operating company with a family trust and a, a corporate beneficiary Excellent. or a personal wealth company as Excellent. some people call it. So what other advantages do you think there are to proper corporate structure planning? I mean, we've talked about credit protection. There's also the tax planning opportunities with access to the small business tax rate and of course the lifetime capital gains exemption. Anything we're not covering? No, I think that that pretty much does it. Um, you sort of mentioned to tax deferral. And yeah. so if you can move money up from the operating company to the trust and then on the way to your corporate beneficiary holding company, and then you don't need to spend it and it stays in your personal wealth company, uh, that defers taxes. Eventually, if you take it out, you'll have to pay the additional yeah. personal tax, but that defers tax. And if you don't need it, then you've deferred it for a period of time. And, and you can use that money to invest, to buy real estate or to, to make investments with someone like yourself. Okay. Uh, so no I think tax, <laughs> tax deferral, I think is an important point. Yeah, so, and you know, there is gonna be another episode where we're gonna talk about the passive income rules, because that's something we have to be aware of. It's not as, quote unquote, lucrative as it used to be to leave money in the corporation beyond a certain threshold, but we'll talk about that at a later date. So what are the kind of words of advice you have for people when it comes time to look at their corporate structure or their business structure? You know, so let's talk about, start off with someone starting out. What are the words of advice you would give them? Well, I think it's to uh, make sure you have a good, a good team. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think we've tried to introduce people to good investment advisors, good accountants, people who have had these issues and dealt with them before. I think you want to make sure you have this corporate structure in place, you have a shareholder agreement in place, you are keeping proper corporate records. I think the way we approach the setup of a company is that we're getting ready for the ultimate sale. And so we want to make sure we've put all our ducks in a row to ultimately sell the business and not at the end of the day sort of panicking to get everything done at the end of the piece. Well, the other thing too we got to remember is that people need to understand is that you have to have a structure in place for 24 months Correct. before you qualify for that exemption. So we've seen it time and time again where people are like, oh yeah, I have an offer on my business. Can we, can we, can we uh, sell this? I'm like, well, you can sell it, but you need to do all this purification and reorganization. So you guys are offside for the exemption. And when you tell them what the tax bill is going to be and they're like, well, can we fix it now? It's like, well, no, if you want to sell it in two months, you can't fix it now. It's too late for that. 
Yeah, that's why I think keeping your eyes on the prize right from the outset is, is important and mm -hmm. knowing what your ultimate exit strategy is, is important. And uh, same too with your corporate records. You want to make sure you're keeping good corporate records because trying to reinvent the wheel at the end of the piece is Not very bad. difficult. So doing having proper corporate hygiene from the outset is important. Another piece of advice that you haven't touched on is just making sure that maybe related to your corporate records that you you have proper agreements with your customers, long-term agreements with your customers, yep. that you are trying to capture the value, whether through your customer contracts or with your intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is all about sort of... Good Getting the right advice. and Correct. And we've worked on a couple of these cases together. The number of times we've had clients who talked about wanting to do this, put it off, and then a buyer popped up out of nowhere. Or one of the more, more amusing ones we had, which was two people looking at a reorganization saying, look, no one ever buys... Correct. companies in our business like it just doesn't happen it doesn't happen and sure enough six months later they Lo get a, they get a life-altering offer and we're just like wow i wish i had something as unsellable as the two of you right like yeah. so you know i think and also having spoken to deal brokers who do this sort of thing at any point the reality is any business that has money coming in that's reasonable or sizable someone's going to be interested in buying it somewhere it may not yeah. be easy to find them but someone's gonna be interested. Yeah, I use that example all the time when someone tells me oh, there's no one to buy our business. I use that example. Yeah. Uh, there's there's probably a buyer out there. Yeah, well there's one case we're working on together right now where a personal friend of mine and the exact same thing was like, look, in our industry, no one buys shares, everybody buys assets. And just to be clear, when you sell your business, you can sell the assets of the business, in which case they don't buy the corporation, they re you retain the corporation and the liability, and they buy the assets. The advantage of them is that they get no liability that comes with the corp. However, the disadvantage is the tax situation. You're paying capital gains, you're not getting the exemption. We'll go, we'll go into that in a deeper, in deeper in the next, uh, in another future episode. But this is what he's telling me. He's like, no one ever buys that, they buy the assets, end of story. Lo and behold, they got a phone call last month. Oh, so, uh, you know, family members thinking of buying into the business. I started laughing, because <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's, it's like, oh, great. So he's like, yeah, I want to sell the shares. So I'm like, great. So you're going to pay taxes. He said, I wouldn't. I said, no, I said, you wouldn't if you reorganized yourself properly to make sure you didn't. And it's too late now. It's like, okay, so what if we put this off for 24 months? It's like, so you want to enter into a deal now for two years down the road? No, you can't do that. <laughs> right. So, so it's, it's, you know, this is just a message out there. Never, ever, ever set yourself up. It's like insurance, right? Like, you know, when the house is on fire, that's when you need the insurance, but no one's going to give you the insurance when the house is on fire and CRA is not going to give you the tax break after the fact. <laughs> Yeah, correct. Yeah. So any parting thoughts or words of advice that you would give uh, beyond what we've talked about thus far? I think the only other thing we've talked about setting it up properly and, and getting it ready for sale. I think the one thing we haven't touched on is oftentimes, especially in, in this day and age with the startup scene and the tech mm -hmm. scene in Canada, which isn't like it used to be, where we haven't touched on sort of the possibility of getting funding as you grow your business. Yes, okay, so and, let's talk about that a greater day. And so a, a lot mm -hmm. of times uh, what we've talked about, keeping good corporate records, protecting your IP, getting in agreements in place with your customers, getting your employees and contractors to sign agreements, those are all helpful to ultimately sell but they're also helpful to raise capital as you grow your business. Mm. And in Canada now, there are ways to raise capital in a way that there wasn't 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's- You're telling me the venture capital scene's exploded in Canada. Um, seed investors, angel funds, oh, venture yeah. capital, a big chunk of my practice is, is representing venture capital firms from the US investing mm -hmm. in Canadian companies. Hmm. And so I, I do think a lot of these things would lend itself to raising capital as you run and operate your business. So it, it has a couple of purposes. 
is not just for ultimately to sell the business. Yeah, and I mean, you, you touched upon several times about keeping clean books and keeping everything up to date. All too often, you know, we basically find these issues where something gets presented, it's like, oh, this person, you know, wants to buy my business. And it's like, okay, well, your financials are a mess. You haven't updated your minute book in, you know, five years or longer. You know, never mind the corporate structure stuff, you can't even find the documents. Like, this is, all you're doing is someone comes and knocks the door and says, I'm willing to cut you a check for your business. You're not exactly showing them that you're, you have the most sellable business when you're scrambling to find and catch up on stuff that you haven't done for years. Yeah, and I think in today's day and age, you, you find firms, law firms, accounting firms, um, who if you have a good idea and you have a good track record, you don't have to be scared of the price tag attached with the professional services that are being offered. No. Because if you do have something that is ultimately going to grow there are firms out there that will take a chance on you, defer mm -hmm. fees, yeah. uh, discount fees, uh, become a partner of yours in the sense that they're not going to hit you over the head with a huge bill right out of the gate. So I think if you try to find a firm that can assist you and grow with you and not just settle for the friend down the street, making sure that you're getting the right advice up front, whether it's from a, a legal professional or accounting professional, you don't have to be scared of the price tag necessarily. Yeah, and I'll tell you, the I sleep much better knowing that I have the proper legal and accounting advice because I've seen it all too often where someone has outgrown the corner shop guy that took care of this one thing or the guy, you know, we give him the business because he's affordable. It's like, well, yeah, but you got to realize that the right team is also an insurance policy. Correct. And, you know, I'm not telling you to go break the bank and hire KPMG to do your books when you're a one-man operation, but I am saying you got to find someone that has internal resources so that as your business goes from point A to point B, you know, you're able to do that. And the number of times I have clients who basically, I tell them, okay, I'm going to talk to your accountant. And the first thing they look at me and say, okay, you let me know if they're the right accountant anymore. Yeah. It's like, okay, so they've been with me for a long time. They do this. I pay them a fair amount. I just had this conversation today. They pay them good money. But I don't feel like I get much out of them, right? And it's, uh, they've literally been outgrown, but very few people ever say, you've outgrown me, move on to someone else. So yeah, find, find the right people to start. Yeah, finding the right people, the right team, and putting that team in place from the outset. And then adjusting if it's not the right team, I yeah. think is important. Yeah, and making, making sure you get value. I mean, I'm putting him in contact with someone who's actually been on my other podcast, Live CA, where they, for a similar price point, this guy was doing the books and filing the taxes. For a similar price point, these people do the books, file the taxes, have in-house legal counsel, pay, do payroll, do accounts payable, all this other stuff. So far more value, far more touch points, and far more professionalism. So it's, sometimes it's not about the cost. The cost can actually be pretty similar between be good and average. You just got to find work to find good. Yeah, the, the firms that you're talking about have had experience dealing with, you know, small, medium-sized businesses, yeah. startups, and uh, they're able to provide that expertise um, over and over again. Yeah, that's really the important thing is making sure you find people who, in a lot of ways, have had experience dealing with specifically your type of business. And oftentimes, when I made referrals to you in the past, sometimes it'll be in, in industries that you've had a lot of exposure to. And the level of comfort that that brings to the people who are who are basically getting that referral, they feel a lot better because, like, you've seen this. You know what goes wrong. You know you know what goes right. You know how it should be doing this. It's a lot of a lot of value to be out of there. Yeah, you can talk the talk. You can understand the jargon, just it, like I'm sure there's yeah. been a lot of jargon on this podcast. But I, I, I think. No <laughs> Knowing the, the industry and being able to uh, have the communication in, in the language they understand is helpful. 
Yeah, I mean, you know me, I mean, it's a number of business clients where the key value proposition for me is translating what the accountant lawyer says into plain English. It's hilarious. <laughs> but it is valuable to them and it makes a lot of sense. It's just part of the overall offering. Yeah, so this has been great, Ted. Thank you very much for taking the time to come in. Well, thanks, Jason. Yeah. I, this has been fun. Thanks for having me. No, so where can people find you? Uh, DLA Piper. We're uh, here in Toronto. We have offices across the country, uh, all oh, across the world. I was going to say across the world. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So perfect. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, Jason. So I hope you enjoyed that interview and I hope you found it informative and came to understand why strong corporate structure that services your long-term goals is very important and from a tax and protection standpoint. So I hope you continue to join me in this podcast as I speak to different people who will help you in your entrepreneurial journey. And with that, I'm Jason Pereira. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Doing so helps people discover us. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more episodes, go to jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.